0: is not complex, and not hidden, and very obvious. And it's actually so obvious that people who teach it oftentimes start to feel like they're fatiguing their listeners, um, like they're actually not doing enough with the text. And so they want to either do more, or D.A. Corson says that they stop preaching on John about chapter 7 or chapter 9. And I thought, well, here we are. Shall we continue on, or? Should we keep going? And, you know, it, it occurred to me that if you sit down at Slim Chickens, which is a wonderful place, if you've not sat down there, you should, um, and you get three hungry plates, you know, at the end of the first one, you should be thinking, I probably had too much to eat already. But the problem is not with the other hungry plates. It's with the finite stomachs that we possess. We can't take in enough goodness as creatures, and we grow weary of eating even delicious food. You can think about wedding cakes or whatever it may be that you love, you get to a point where you can't take more in because we are just so creaturely. And so some of what we are praying is that the Spirit help us rise above that and continue to behold Christ because we're going to keep going. And so just our first thing is just to reframe, don't grow tired, don't grow weary in doing good. And doing good in the gospel according to John is to keep looking at Christ, to keep believing, to keep taking him in. You know, Casey actually read uh, in... Chapter six last week, I assume you taught on this well, um, because Casey's a great teacher. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. We need to feast upon Christ every time we come together. And that's what we hope to do in John seven as well. So, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And we're going to try to be satisfied in John seven. So we're going to go through this basically with four, uh, just, we're going to go through four different kind of dialogues, and we're just going to see what the Lord has to offer us in those dialogues. So we'll go kind of verse 1 through 9, verses 10 through 24, verses 25 through 36, and then verses 37 through 52. You don't have to remember all that. We'll read it all together, stop and take it in. So starting in John 7, verse 1, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. A few quick things just for context is uh, Jesus obviously has done a great work in John 5. We have John 6 in between it, but John 5 is actually going to be really helpful to try to remember where he's healed the person who was um, by the pool, you know, in 5-2, five, five in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. A lot of people are living there. Jesus asked, do you want to be healed? I think Jeremy taught on this passage. Jesus heals him. And he gets up, and it's on the Sabbath, and it's a huge controversy. And so Jesus now uh, has got some real issues, some bad blood with the, uh, the priests. And, sorry, the Jews, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the kind of Sanhedrin. And he doesn't want to travel through Judea because they are seeking to kill him. But the Feast of Booths is coming up. Now, if you don't know what that is, first of all, just even as you're reading your Bibles, it's always good to take in that, um, you know, 5-1 John says, and after this, there was a feast of the Jews, very vague. So that he says that this is the feast of booths is actually him telling us that that's actually significant. Whereas in 5, it doesn't really necessarily matter which feast is. Theologically, it doesn't have significance in John's mind. Anytime he gives you a detail like that, you should be going, that's going to be significant later on. And so just hold that in your mind, because we're actually going to see that in Jesus's final and kind of greatest cry to the crowd later on, why it's significant that this is the Feast of Booths. But it was essentially a festival given in the uh, Mosaic law, where the people were actually supposed to live in booths that they were to make like they would have lived in in the wilderness, and to remember that God had brought them up through the wilderness to the land where they now are. And so this is a reminder of what God has done for them. And you're actually going to see there's a lot of uh, conversation going on about the law of Moses and Moses and what Moses gave you. This is one of the heaviest sections of the book where the law of Moses is being discussed. I think chapter 7 has the most references to Moses uh, of any chapter in the book, if if I've looked at it correctly. So just as you're thinking about this, there's a lot going on there for a reason. So we're thinking about Moses, we're thinking about the wilderness, we're thinking about what God gave to his people in the wilderness, that is, the law. And then Jesus is going to be discussing many of these similar themes, and then we'll see later one great thing that he brings up. But his brothers say to him, leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world." Uh, You can hear, I hope, the mocking kind of condescension. If anybody has brothers, I mean, I've been a brother. uh, They are not supporters. I mean, verse 5 makes that very clear. They want him to go and receive glory because they don't believe in him. They think that if he exposes himself publicly, that if he goes up openly, they've heard about these signs that he's doing and everything like that. But if he's legit, then he should go up to the Feast of Booths. Now, part of that is because the Old Covenant... um, The Feast of Booths was one of the three times everybody was mandated to go up to Jerusalem. So this is, uh, you know, one of your best times to get in front of as many eyeballs as possible within the Jewish calendar. You're not going to have many better shots to, like, kind of make your name and stake your reputation uh, than this event. So they're saying, hey, it's a Feast of Booths. You got a lot of eyeballs. Go show them what you can do if you're really able to do these works. And Jesus just has a scathing reply for them. Verse 6, My time has not yet come. Your time is always here. What's interesting about this, verse 6, this would have, I think, hit his brothers rather hard, is that Jesus actually uses, in the original, it's two different words for the word time, but by doing um, two different words for the word time, he makes distinct that they're living in almost a different sense of time than Jesus himself is. His time is the Father's time. His time is when the Father has ordained for things to happen, Jesus is basically saying, I'm actually waiting for the Father and his providence to ordain when I should go up to this festival. You can go up whenever you want because you have nothing at stake. You're outside of God's sovereign plan. You have no care for his time. You have no care for when he wants things to happen. You have no care for how he wants things to happen. And so because he's saying, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here, The time that is fading the time that receives its glory now not waits for its glory later the world cannot hate you but it hates me because i testify about it that its works are evil you know one of the hallmarks of living within the will of god of seeking his time of speaking the words he wants us to speak at the times he wants us to speak them is actually jesus will guarantee us to be like him in being hated by the world one of the ways that we will not be greater than our master, but we will be like him, is actually there should come times when when we live within the time and the plan of God, our testimony should actually bring about hatred because of the things we are testifying, because there are works that are evil. And so one of the first reflection questions that we can just ask ourselves is what things are we avoiding testifying about that are evil because we're worried about being hated? Are there friends? Are there things that you look at and you kind of want to just shrug your shoulders and you want to say, it's not the right time to speak? It's not the right time to confront these things? It's not the right time to say anything about these things? At some point, Christianity is a religion that does confront the, te- the works of the world. Jesus gets crucified for doing this very thing, he gets hated for doing this very thing. We are not greater than our Lord. We don't get to avoid that. And in fact, We shouldn't want to because actually to be like him and to be confirmed in his sufferings is proof that we will share in his glory because we know the Father's time is coming when the Son will return in judgment and he will judge the works of the world. And so one of the things we can just look at is that the world should at times hate the things you say about its works. For Jesus, it certainly was this way. He says, You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And he kind of brings it all back around, saying, You live outside of God's plans, outside of his desires, outside of his designs. And you know, one encouragement just for, for college students, I mean, just thinking about even what James says about those who are rich and accumulating much. He says, You know, are you going to in a year go and to such a city and do such and such and make such and such money? He says, What should you say? Lord willing. Even submitting our plans, our long-term plans to the Lord is one of the ways that we're willing to live within his time and move in the ways that he wants us to move. And I'm sure if you talk to each other, you all have experienced times where God's timing has not been what you thought was going to happen. When he wants you to do something different or in a different time and in a different way than you expected it to happen. But we should be submitting our sense of time to the Lord's because the best way to live within the Lord's sense of timing is always to be submitting ourselves to him so that we know when he wants us to move, when he wants us to speak, and when he wants us to act. And this is constantly requiring prayer. There's so much more we could probably say about this. I want to keep us moving for the sake of time. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. And then we got verses 10 through 24. Let's read that briefly. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath the man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment." So we have a few things going on here. First of all, you have the obvious, uh, you know, if you ever listen to somebody question whether Jesus was perfect, this may be a text that they bring you to. Uh, Jesus said, I'm not going up to the feast. And then after his brothers had gone up in verse 10, then he also went up. Uh, Did Jesus just pull a fast one? Did he get fickle? Did he change his mind? There's a lot of people who will say that. But we should have a good answer for this because john makes very clear that his brother said no one works in secret or in private if he seeks to be known openly if you do these things show yourself to the world and then jesus when he said i'm not going up to the feast he meant i think i'm not going up to this feast at this time and in this way as in i'm not going up to this feast at this time nor am i going up to this feast for my glory to be received here for his glory will come in a very different manner That is to be crucified. So he goes up and John says, not publicly, but in private. So the nature of what Jesus is saying to his brothers, just so it's crystal clear, is that he was not going to go up to achieve glory at the time they had suggested, and instead go up when the Father wanted him to go up. And that was not to go up publicly, but in private. And the Jews are looking for him because they're surprised, right? The world's very surprised when you don't actually seek glory at the times and the ways that they expect it. Where is he? everyone thought jesus was going to be here and there was much muttering about him you know evoking something like psalm 1. right here we have a, a great you know, tension you know, psalm 1 is like the 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 man who delights in the law of the lord he meditates or mutters on it day and night but psalm 2 those who meditate vanities they mutter vanities so you have this split there's this emerging tension of what to do with jesus and they're muttering about him and some are saying he is a good man and others are saying, no, he is leading the people astray. But for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. John is starting to build some tension. Which way are things going to fall? Because nobody's really willing to take a stand either way at this point. Nobody's really willing to stake any serious, you know, uh, bets on which one he is. They don't want to talk openly. The only thing they know that's serious is the Jews might hurt them or cast them out of the synagogues or do some kind of punishment to them if they talk about it. But they're starting to mutter and they're starting to form opinions of Jesus in their heart. And we too, as the reader, should be starting to say, what kind of opinions are we starting to form about Jesus in our heart? Is he a good man or does he lead the people astray? Is this all this manna stuff he talked about in John 6? Is he just making stuff up, drawing weird Old Testament connections and saying, I am the bread of life, you must drink my blood? Is he promoting blasphemy to say that life in God is going to come through eating and drinking of him? Or is he a good man who has good intentions for his people? Well, let's keep reading because we're going to see the answer. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching The Jews marveled, saying, how is it that this man is learning when he has never studied? Now here, I mean, I think they really are amazed at Jesus, but I think they're also trying to get back a little bit at him. Uh, John 5, which again, we're in kind of conversation with that. Jesus has said, you know, you search the scriptures thinking that you have life in them, um, but it is me that they bear witness to. And, you know, in some of these uh, areas where he's talking about that, he's even calling the words of Moses... Uh, in verse 46 546 for if you believe Moses you would believe me for he wrote of me but if you do not believe his writings that word for writings is the same word here as a l- of learning right it's letters is really like a way we could translate it that makes sense uh, how is it this man has studied letters when he's never studied at all and he's never studied under the rabbis at least You know, and here you have the letters of Moses. And so they're really trying to start excluding Jesus from any kind of um, really good opinions of the law of Moses. How is this man, how how is it that he knows the letters of Moses when he's never even, has he ever studied letters? He's from Galilee. What could he know? Has he even read all of Moses? Well, Jesus is going to show them whether he's read it or not in just a little bit. But Jesus has an important saying before he gets to the specific question of the law of Moses. Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. There's two quick things here. One, just as you're reading through John in verse 16, something really important is there's basically three modes that Jesus is going to speak about himself in the Gospel of John. And your job as a reader, anytime you read John, is to figure out which of the three ways is Jesus referencing himself. There is one way in which he is referencing himself as equal with God. I tell you truly, you know, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. I am, right? He's just equivocating himself with God. He's speaking, as Augustine might say, in the form of God. Then there's other times where he's going to speak in the form of a servant, in the form of a man, saying things like, I do not know the day or the hour. Or he may say, you know, not my will be done, but your will be done. Speaking very much as a man to his God, relating properly to him, right? And that's kind of the form of the man or the form of the servant. But this is a third way in which Jesus actually takes us into Trinitarian territory. And he is actually here now speaking, like, you can't actually just choose one or the other. Just in his divinity or just in his humanity. He says my teaching is not mine it's his teaching but also not his well that could raise a whole host of contradictions right my teaching is not mine but his who sent me my if anyone's will is to do god he will know whether the teaching is from god or whether i'm speaking on my own authority jesus here if you ever see language of sent or from jesus very well may be actually trying to relate himself as the second person of the trinity which is going to sound almost like he's in servitude to the Father, but is not meant to make himself less than the Father, but just to relate his origins as one who is the eternal word. So when he's saying, my word is not mine, but his who sent me, well, who is the word of the Father? Jesus. So he is not his own in one sense, because the Son does not beget the Father. The Father begets the Son, and so the Son is from the Father, eternally, yes, but very much from the Father, and so he is not his own word, he is the Father's word. And in that sense, he has origins in God that he doesn't do. Um, and so you'll, you'll see this as you read through um, Ch- John chapter 5 when he says, uh, for example, another good, uh, in 519, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. That sounds like absolute dependence upon God, and it is but only what he sees the Father doing for whatever the Father does or for everything the Father does that the Son does likewise. So here the Son is saying, I can do nothing of his own accord, but I also do everything the Father does. Do you start to hear mystery in that statement? I hope you do, because John is going to utter those kind of mysteries where he's going to say, my teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. But I'm, I am the word that's from God. So it's not my own, but I am the word. And so as you're reading through, again, just pay attention. John 14, we'll have another famous example of this. But as you're reading, just really try to think when Jesus is speaking. That's one of your largest tasks and one of the biggest hurdles to misreading the gospel of John, is not knowing the different ways in which Jesus speaks of himself. So again, speaking of himself and only as humanity Or speaking according to his human nature, that might be better said. Speaking according to his divine nature. Or speaking of himself in his eternal origins and relationship to God the Father. And that's what we have here. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And that helps explain verse 17, because verse 17 is kind of odd. It's almost circular. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God. Wow. I mean, doesn't that feel like just a get-out-of-jail-free card? Okay, I mean, if you want to do God's will, all of a sudden you'll know whether this is God's will. But actually, I think that there's a very important point. And we should think about this in our own evangelism. And as we call people to Christ, this is extremely important. And I actually think the NIV, just in case anybody ever makes fun of the NIV, stop. Uh, It's not the nearly inspired version or anything you've ever heard. It has the best translation. Um, It actually says, if anyone starts to do God's will... He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. There is a really important reality in the Christian life that we learn the fruit and the truthfulness and the, the, the authenticity of God's word as we actually give ourselves to God. You know, there's the song, Trust and Obey, you know, for we never can prove the delights of his word until all on the altar we lay. We never can prove the delights of his word until all on the altar we lay. Your God is not something to be poked and prodded and examined safely from a distance to try to figure out, is this really legit? God won't give himself to you in that way. Jesus doesn't come to you in that way. He says, come, follow me, pick up your cross, and know that I am the Lord. And he expects you to start doing it. And so, really, as you're thinking about, even in our evangelism, you know, you start need to start distinguishing. Some people are going to, you, you're going to get into evangelistic conversations, and they're going to go, well, like, what about what about election? Um, God saves some, and he doesn't save others. And there are some people who are really wrestling with that because of, like, pastoral reasons or ministerial reasons, like somebody they're thinking about particularly that died. Now, okay, this is not a good time to just be like, we, I don't care about what you're talking about. That's a time to minister to that person and love them. And then you can point them to great answers. The scriptures are full of answers that help somebody like that. John 11, you can say, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He actually cried over the tomb of his loved one. He hates death more than anyone hates death. He was outraged to see death killing his friends. Jesus hates that your friends die, Jesus hates that your family dies, Jesus hates death. Do you see how if that's somebody's object, if that's somebody's resistance to to God, like their hearts can start to warm towards Christ because he actually provides solutions to the enemy of death that people hate and they experience and they are fighting against. And in that way, Jesus is very good. But if somebody's sitting there and they're just like, well, what about all these hypothetical situations? And they keep throwing things at you. It's okay to just tell them you need to repent. You need to hear Christ's word to you that he calls you to follow him for there is no other way. He is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through him. You know, some people are trying to contemplate things that they can't even contemplate and they've really taken Christ seriously. And so when you're seeing somebody who's just poking and prodding at God and you get the sense they're not serious, this is just intellectually defending themselves, see through it. As believers, see through it. And start actually calling them to come and do the Lord's will. Come and tell them, God says, taste and see that I am good. Not poke and prod, not sit back and wonder. Eat my flesh, drink my blood, see if I am not as good as I tell you I am. We have the same problem in our own hearts, right? Like how many times do we sit there and we wonder whether God will really be good in the circumstances we feel like he's calling us to, and the moment we actually just give ourselves to him and we follow him and we trust him, he is always there for us. I trust many of you are here in this room because that is your experience, that God has not let you down, that he's held you up, carried you through, because he's a kind God, he's a patient God, he's a wonderfully abundant God. And when you've given your, your life to him, when you have given yourself to his will, I trust that you have not been disappointed, and you have found that he really does have what he offers you. We need to keep moving, but that's just something we should be thinking about in our own lives and as we minister the gospel to other people. And then there's just a note on teaching. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. You know, Just a note to anybody who aspires to be teachers, I won't belabor this point. If you ever want to teach in the church make sure the teaching you have is not your own don't depend on creativity to teach you know uh the scriptures actually say honor your father and your mother which is obviously mostly a biological command there is a sense though in which when we come into the family of god we have god as our father who gives us the scriptures and we have the church as our mother and she has been led by the holy spirit throughout all the ages and has faithfully taught many excellent things from the scriptures And so one of the ways, if you want to teach, that you will teach well, is to honor your father and mother. That is to know this book exceptionally well. You know, the Proverbs say, don't ignore your father's instruction, it is a garland for your head, nor your mother's instruction, it is pendants for your neck. Make sure you have the garland on your head. Make sure you know this supremely well. And then also be in dialogue well with the church that has come before you. There are many fine pendants you can place around your neck that will aid you, that will comfort you, that will make you feel very grounded and very confident in your teaching. And to try to teach without having any sense of historical awareness of how Christianity has answered or dialogued about the scriptures um, will feel like you're just ending up on an island trying to make up things as you go. And if you do that, beware, because all of a sudden, we see this all the time in our day where people say very creative and very interesting things, and what happens to them? They start to end up seeking their own glory because their own ego and their own witness is now bound up in continuing to confirm the words they have spoken. And repentance is really hard when you're up on a stage teaching. Repentance is very difficult. When you say something that might sound cool or edgy, But backing away from it is very humbling and is very difficult. So again, just if you're teaching, take verse 18 to heart and just make that a verse you meditate on. Are you speaking from your own authority? Are your words your own? Or are you seeking the glory of him who sent you, that is, Jesus Christ, who has taught us and helped us by the Holy Spirit to know him? Then Jesus says, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keep the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And in here, Jesus is going to make a simple point between this and all the way down through verse 24. And so just to sum it up, Jesus is going to tell them you're going to kill me. The crowd has a humorous answer. They say, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you, right? But then verse 25, is this not the man whom they seek to kill, right? They know there's a plot for Jesus, yet they don't even believe it when Jesus says people are trying to kill him, which just tells you again, people are fine if somebody else is part of a plot, but if you ever indict them of being part of the sinful (laughs) conspiracy themselves, all of a sudden they're like, you have a demon. <laughs> Just, wow, what a what an escalated response. Um, but Jesus is telling them, Moses gave you the law. You don't follow the law, but you don't reject Moses, do you? Why are you trying to kill me? If, if Moses, who you don't even follow, you don't even live up to, why are you worried about that? Why are you trying to kill me and get rid of me? I did one work and you all marvel at it. And here's an example of how Um, you know, Moses gave you circumcision and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Just to sum this up, basically, there is a tension in the law. If somebody's born on the Sabbath. Prior to circumcision, they're gonna you know the eighth day, so the way the Jews would have counted the first day that they were born would count also as a day. And so then seven days from then would also then be another Sabbath, so that a male who was born on the Sabbath would then be circumcised on the Sabbath. But circumcision was thought as a perfection of the body in Jewish thought. It was when the body was brought into covenant inclusion, and so it was not a, a, a marring of the body, but it was a perfection of it. And Jesus here is saying, if you guys have a caveat where somehow you can do this work on the Sabbath, even though the law of Moses says don't work on the Sabbath, are you judging me that I made a whole man well? A greater act of restoration than even what Moses offers in circumcision? And he says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So then coming through in 25, people start to respond to this. It's a very convincing argument, and you know how you can tell Jesus has a good argument? They start asking weird questions. (laughs) Uh, Is this not whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to it. So then they're going to come up with a number of things that maybe can explain who this man is, that Jesus is. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is Christ? But then they get into all this, but we know where this man comes from. And again, when you think from origins, really we know where Jesus is from. He's from the Father, ultimately, And the problem in John is that nobody can really see where he's from. They get lost in all the human details of everything and fail to see the sun and his glory. Where is he from? Right, and, you know, anyway, we could talk about, never mind. We're going to keep moving. I had, like, just so many Cotton Eye Joe quotes come through my mind just there, but we're we're not going to get lost there. Um, It's wonderful. Uh, No, no. Well, they're a techno pop band from, like, Sweden, right, called the Rednecks. And they like, make this song that probably comes from spiritual songs sung in like, slavery, and they make it popular, and then they have to apologize to a bunch of rednecks over it. It's just a, that and the Great Squirrel War of 1812, two of the greatest moments in, in American history. Um, you can look it up. Seriously, the state of California declared war on ground squirrels in 1812, called them the little allies of the Kaiser, and directed, you know, papers had them in pickle houses and everything like that. Just great stuff. All right, I got that out of the way. Let's keep going. So they're asking where he's from, and Jesus says, you know me, and you know where I come from. Again, that's why I was singing Cotton Eye Joe. Um, But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Again, Jesus is laying the groundwork of saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, because you're trying to figure out, is this man really from the Father? And he's saying, well, how do you even know if he's from the Father without actually knowing me first? That's like skipping all the way around. It's like playing uh, you know, hops, uh, hopscotch or whatever the, the game is. I just butchered that name, didn't I? What's it called? Hopscotch. Oh, is it? Great, I caught it right. Wonderful. It's like doing that and then like halfway through, just like getting off and walking to the end and just pretending that that's a legit way to play the game. And it's not. So they were starting to seek to arrest him. This is another solution. You can ask questions about Christ as a defense to acknowledging who he is. You could just seek to arrest him And we should be careful of how our own hearts seek to arrest Christ and stop his ministry to us. Don't let your hearts seize Christ and arrest him and arrest the momentum he gathers within you, but continue to press in. But then we get this interesting comment, a glimmer of hope, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? You know, I mean, believing just upon the signs isn't necessarily going to be the culmination of John's gospel, but it's a start, (laughs) It's good that beholding the signs and the authority and the power of Christ, will, when the Christ comes, will he do more than this man has done? And we with 2,000 years can sit there and say the same thing. Can you think of someone besides Christ who has done more than this man has done? Can you think of anyone who has reorganized the world and revolutionized the world more than this man has done? So even if you're sitting here actually wondering, is this the Christ? Do you, if you don't know who Jesus is, consider the signs consider his fruit consider his work even in the church today and how he fails to be put to death how he stays risen and alive and works that out in his people and ask yourself if he's not the christ who would be what would you expect of that person christ has done so much will they will someone else do more than he i don't think so But the Pharisees, they hear the crowd muttering in verse 32. Again, that muttering word, clearly invoking the Psalms. They're going the wrong way. The chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Why do the kings of the earth gather together and the rulers gather against Yahweh and his anointed? And you're going to see this in Acts 2. If you're ever wondering, is this legit? Is this really what happens when uh, people are being arrested? They quote Psalm 2. Because that's exactly what they think is happening. Momentum is happening. The Christ has come. Salvation has come down for our sake and for us. And they're trying to stop it. Why do they resist Yahweh and his anointed? Jesus says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Haunting words. And again, notice in 35, the Jews, they don't get it. They're asking all the wrong questions. Where does this man go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Notice, too, as you pay attention, Jesus is going to later tell his disciples, you cannot come where I am yet in the, the discourse with his disciples in John 13 and 17. But here he is talking to people who are resisting him. And he's saying, where I am going, you will not be able to come. And that is a word that we should all take seriously, lest we too fall into resisting Christ and not being able to follow where he has gone as we trace him through the book of John. We will see him go up in glory. And if we resist him, we will not follow him in that glory, and we will not share in his life. So don't resist him. And ironically, actually, Jesus (laughs) does exactly what they say. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? by the Holy Spirit and through the church, that's exactly what Jesus ends up doing. They are so confused and they try to put a stop to it. And by trying to murder him, they actually perpetuate the very thing. They're like, that sounds silly that Jesus would end up teaching the Greeks the law of Moses about God. Jesus is going to do exactly that because he is powerful. And then we come to 37. We're just going to end here with these encouraging words and then I want to point to one character who I think embodies these words for us. On the last day of the feast, and again, remember, the feast of the booths, we're here, we have feast language again, so John is trying to draw dots in our minds. As you're reading, hear that word feast, the great day, which in Jewish thought was the eighth day, which is when they did a water drawing festival. That was their ritual, was to draw water, I think even probably thinking about something like Numbers and the water coming from the rock, and thinking about how the Lord sustained them in the wilderness. And it's kind of the great act of sustenance. So they are drawing water, and Jesus stands up and he cries out. And do not miss the things that Jesus cries out to you. Because Jesus does not just say these words to them, but I want you to hear these words said to you tonight. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You know, Jesus has just said in verse 36, where I am, you cannot come. But then in verse 37, he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come. For those who resist Christ, there's no coming to him. But if you're thirsty, if you're thirsty, he invites you to come to him. I don't know what it is that maybe you thirst for. In my own life, like one example of something I can thirst for is, um, I just, I ache for Friendships. Um, sometimes unhealthily so, sometimes to an unhealthy degree. Uh, sometimes I want so much from my friendships that it almost like leaves my mouth swollen and parched, as if I can't even swallow, because I, I, I long for them, sometimes in healthy ways and sometimes in unhealthy ways. Wanting so much from them, wanting life from them. And the truth is, is that if you long for friendships in that way, you will just find that they're, they're very difficult. You actually don't enjoy your friendships very much, and they start to actually turn very bitter to you. And you feel like you've got nothing there. Friendships don't offer you water that satisfies. I don't know what it is, you know, I mean, Dixon Street's not going to offer anything that really satisfies because everybody has to go out weekend after weekend. Obviously, they didn't get enough the prior weekend. So they must not be satisfied. And that's what you're going to see. If you just look at the habits of the world, anything they say they love and they do, and they may genuinely love it, they may love doing it, they've got to do it again and again and again. They have to keep going and going and going. And Jesus is here saying, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He said this about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given. Jesus would love to pour out the spirit into your hearts in a hope that does not disappoint you. If you come to him and say, I'm thirsty, I am longing for someone who can satisfy me. Jesus can and will and does and has repeatedly throughout all the ages that he has reigned, satisfied everyone who's ever come to him and asked him to satisfy them. And if you have not tasted that satisfaction, please do so. Do so. Do not resist him. Don't ask the wrong questions. Don't get lost on, is he from Galilee or is he from Bethlehem or is he from, he's from God (laughs) and he is God and he is the word made flesh. He is the light that the darkness has not known or has known but has not overcome. The grave swallowed him up and then three days later he came out and light has never shone brighter than that moment. Life has never been more abundant than Jesus tenderly gardening at the end of the book. Just, I love that he has time to just take care of plants that may have been shaken by the earthquake because he's just got so much life that he can take care of even plants moments after his resurrection. Can he not take care of you who are worth much more? He can. And he will. And I have one encouragement before I go. There's a lot of questions down there, but I want us to just focus on verse 50 and 51. Nicodemus who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They reply very distastefully. But here's what I want you to get from Nicodemus tonight. He's the only one in this chapter willing to say anything remotely good about Jesus. Other people are afraid of the Jews. And here Nicodemus is on the Sanhedrin, as close as you get to the fire. And he's actually willing to start saying are we judging him prematurely? And here's the glorious news of the Christian life, and I just, I want you to marvel at God's patience. Nicodemus is a wonderful character in the whole gospel of John. He comes to Jesus in absolute darkness in John 3. Doesn't know anything. Jesus is like, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know this? Just, he comes as a babe. He has no knowledge of God. Here though, G- Nicodemus is starting to take a turn. He's starting And it's not much, (laughs) and this is the encouraging part, it's not much, but he's willing to start saying a good word for Jesus Christ. Are we judging him prematurely? Does our law judge somebody before we've heard him out? Are we not actually resisting him before we even know what he's doing? By the end of the book, Nicodemus is at the tomb of Jesus, tending to one who is dead. That would make Nicodemus unclean. Nicodemus goes from John 3, in the darkness, totally lost, to here kind of starting to do something marking progression, and at the end willing to be associated with Jesus in all of his unclean death. And Nicodemus, I trust, is a brother in the faith, and we will meet him, and we will revel in his story. And why is this good news for you? Because it means that our progression in the faith can actually be slow too, It's really encouraging to read about people like Nicodemus. I I just think we should soak it in that the Lord is so patient with someone like Nicodemus. You know, John 3, it can sound like he's so harsh to him. You fool. Like, don't you even know anything? Are you a teacher of Israel? But Jesus isn't there to condemn him. Jesus isn't there to be done with him. Jesus is there asking the right kind of questions and probing into his heart so that over the course, now this is 18 months after that conversation, just for a time frame. It took 18 months for Nicodemus to get the courage to just ask, like, are we doing something improper with the law about this man? Because he may be better than we realize. That took a year and a half. Are you frustrated in your own sanctification? Don't be. God works in patience in your life. <laughs> and I just hope that's an encouraging note that if you come and you feel like you struggle with imperfections, you struggle that you're not following him as faithfully. Look how patient the Lord is with Nicodemus, and just trust that he didn't fail Nicodemus. Nicodemus got a sip of that water in John 3, and Jesus said that water would turn into flowing rivers of living water, and over time, it actually did that very thing until Nicodemus had the very life Jesus promised, and so shall we if we persevere. There's a lot more we could say, but we've already been here about 40 minutes, and so I'm going to pray for us, and then if you have any more questions, be happy to to take them afterwards. Jesus, we are very grateful that you are the one who offers living water to us. We're very grateful that you have made a way where the Holy Spirit can be poured out, because you have descended to us, you have died for us, you have been raised for us, and you are ascended, and whatever you ask of the Father, he will send And so, Lord, when we ask for you to satisfy us and to fill us with the Holy Spirit, that we may be satisfied, you will answer that prayer. So, Lord, we pray that you would pour out your Spirit on anyone who is thirsty here tonight and who comes to you looking for satisfaction. Christ, help us to trust in you and help us to be persevering in our affections to you while you work out our sanctification as we go through this life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.